Welcome to An Honorable Profession, a podcast giving America hope since 2018. I'm Ryan Coonerty. Along with Debbie Cox Bolton of the New Deal, I'm lucky enough to be your co-host. An Honorable Profession is a New Deal Leaders podcast. The New Deal is an organization that supports the next generation of American leaders. From attorneys generals, to state senators, to mayors, to school board members, these are the people that are pushing policies and politics that will respond to climate change, rebuild our economy, address racial injustice, and restore our democracy. These are incredibly talented people who have dedicated themselves to public service when their country and their communities need it the most. Check out NewDealLeaders.org to see what I'm talking about. Today, I talk with the co-founder and CEO of the Leadership Now Project, Daniela Balu Ayers. Daniela worked for two secretaries of state, guiding U.S. policy and global development and HIV response. She also worked in the private sector, growing social impact companies around the world. Now she's turned her attention to strengthening U.S. democracy by urging business leaders to engage on voting rights, redistricting reform, and other essential efforts to ensure the long-term viability and vitality of democracy in this country. Enjoy. Daniela Balu Ayers, welcome to An Honorable Profession. It is wonderful to be speaking with you today. Great to be here, Ryan. Thanks for having me. So we are here to talk about democracy. This is something that should be at top of people's mind. The New Deal released its democracy playbook last month, trying to help frame the debate. One of the organizations that was cited in the report was your organization, which is really trying to seek a long-term approaches to strengthening democracy. Can you talk about what you're doing and why now and why it matters? Sure. Thanks, Ryan. You know, American democracy is in a somewhat unprecedented position right now in that we are seeing backsliding in some of the fundamental norms that have defined in some ways what might call American exceptionalism or the American experiment or what have really how America innovated to build a democracy that was imperfect, but has over time continued to enfranchise more people, create real participation in the system and has fended off the risks of autocracy and dictatorship that you know many other nations have experienced over history. So, you know, I think it is a moment where we do face some real risks. The biggest one is lack of trust in the political system. Americans, when polled now, only about 20% of Americans, according to Pew's research, really have strong trust in our political system. And I think that underpins a lot of the risks and lack of faith in the system, the ability for both political leaders and others to suggest that everything from, you know, elections not being valid to, you know, not having a belief that the system can deliver for them. So I think as an organization, we have built as a group of business leaders who see that democracy is really important to both our society, to our economy, to keeping our nation strong and 
ultimately delivering for you know all Americans that that's a really risky position to be in. And we think the tent for democracy, the pro-democracy tent is quite large. There's you know many Americans who fit into the bucket of supporting a fair system. And we think business people and businesses can make a meaningful contribution to both making the argument for the business case for democracy and doing kind of practical things to uphold the system at a local level. Can you talk about that business case for democracy? You know, the New Deal is focused on policy and policymakers, but business is an important component to creating a thriving democracy. And can you talk about how you make that case and why you chose, you know, that sector to focus part of your work on? Absolutely. You know, I think the argument for why democracy matters to business and to business people is grounded in a couple of arguments. I don't think we should dismiss the basic societal argument that a system that enables citizens to choose their leaders and be a part of doing that and has elections that are, you know, trusted, et cetera, is something that is good for all of us. So I think that is important to business people as well. But when you get one level deeper in terms of what does a stable democracy mean for economic growth, for rule of law and ability to trust in everything from contracts to, you know, your relationship with your suppliers We know that in economies that have had autocratic leaders, that the risk of crises go up a lot, the risk of your bond ratings getting downgraded, the risk of uncertainty and the whims of political leaders who don't have more significant constraints means your risk of going to war goes higher, your risk of laws that have no recourse goes higher. So there's, you know, in the most extreme cases, of course, autocrats you know, like Putin, put your country into wars that are, you know, terrible for human life and terrible for the long-term health of the country. But even in a less extreme example, the lack of checks and balances in societies that move away from democracy are certainly in the long-term very, or even often in the short term and certainly in the long-term bad for business. We know that you know, 45 of the top 50 companies in the world were started in democracies. And the freedoms that democracies allow, freedom of speech, and beyond that are you know, really good for innovation and for the new ideas that we need in the system. So there's strong both academic work that makes that case. And then from a values perspective, we also think it's important that business reflects makes the clear case that having the will of the people ultimately as the most important decider in politics is is something we should all stand for. The Leadership Now Project is a nonpartisan effort. Unfortunately, and sadly, democracy efforts have become polarized and politicized. How do you help companies and business leaders navigate that new dynamic in their pro-democracy efforts? Yeah, I think, you know, we talk a lot about being principled as the way that we define what's important. So being principled versus partisan or even bipartisan, the word we use is principled because we believe that above politics is a set of beliefs that many Americans can align on around having 
a democracy that we can depend on, that we can trust, that delivers for Americans, that's built on facts and science. I think there's a wide range of people and institutions that can stand behind those types of principles. And then I think remaining true to those in terms of how you support your workers, how you participate in the political system, what you advocate for, what you lobby for, is easier to do if you start at that level of principle of what can we stand behind as leaders and as companies that is, you know, also good for our business. That, you know, let's take something very basic, is supporting time off for voting a partisan stance. Is it supporting your employees to participate and vote in partisan stance? Is supporting objective redistricting a part of stance? When we know all of those things are basic systemic factors that are just make it easier to be part of the system, voting historically would be kind of motherhood and apple pie, right? We want people to vote. And that's now... Of course, restrictions on voting in reality are not a new thing, but moving towards higher and higher participation is a goal that many can align on. So I think if you start at that principled level, if the politics come into the debate, which of course they can do and they may even often do when you're in a particular context in a particular state, you know, there might be legislators. We've worked with business leaders in our membership who have been up against restrictive voting laws in their state or have been trying to support reforms to the system like objective redistricting or ranked choice voting where there was pushback. I think being able to say and have the academic and fact-based case for how these types of activities or participation in the system are clearly a neutrally good for democracy (laughs) activity is how you transcend it. But, you know, I think the thing that I worry about and what I do see in the business community happening as there's been pushback, not only on democracy issues, but on things like ESG, et cetera, is that leaders need to be prepared with the kind of clarity on what they support and why, and have really internalized that and be able to embed that in the way their company and their leadership teams works. And sometimes what happens is when companies have engaged in a somewhat either superficial or not fully thought through way on issues, when they get pushback, then they waver a lot, right? Because they're, you know, they're not really sure of why they've decided to do something or what it really means. And our organization was founded by myself and others who'd spent years in business, building companies, saw this extraordinary network of emerging business leaders who really needed to be well-informed and connected to others who were like-minded and working with academics and democracy organizations and others to have a deep understanding of what was really happening, why responding was important, what the response could be. So that's, you know, we need a very well-informed business community so that we can be good partners to policy leaders, to nonprofit organizations, to employees and customers in building a stronger democracy together. I couldn't agree more. Hey, everyone. I just want to take a moment to recommend another great podcast. It's called Sidebar. It's discussions with state and national experts about protecting our most critical individual and civil rights. The co-hosts are two law school deans, J. 
Jackie Gardena, and Mitch Winnick. For more information on Sidebar, go to sidebarmedia.org or wherever podcasts are found. Now, back to our conversation. Could you talk, one of the great strengths of business is a focus on outcomes and data and understanding what success looks like. And so as you engage with business leaders to build a pro-democracy movement, what does success look like from your point of view in the coming, let's say, decade to come? Yeah, it's a great question. I'll give a short answer and then a slightly longer one. Three things we think about in terms of what success looks like. One is a rebuilding of trust in the political system. So I mentioned the polling earlier on trust. It comes from multiple sources. I think we need to see a significant upswing in Americans' belief that the political system is working in their interest and can deliver. Both of those things are seen as relatively weak, and and polling from Edelman and others would suggest that business is seen as more capable of doing some of those things. Although we know that a business is just asked to solve every problem alone, it's going to be both ineffective (laughs) and CEOs won't be able to do their day job if the political system isn't able to resolve some of the bigger policy issues of our time. So one is trust. Two is a rebuilding and growing of the talent pipelines that are willing to but not only run for office, but serve in many capacities at the local level, at the national level, whether it's advisory boards, whether it's participating in organizations that work collaboratively with policymakers, building partnerships. We just want to see a lot more talent that is ready to participate in the political system in a positive and and proactive way. And I know that's core to what New Deal does, right? And core to what you speak with people on this podcast is around, we really do have some amazing political leaders in this country who are working extremely hard to build a stronger society. But that is not universal. And a lot of people are scared off by politics, don't want to participate, see it as less than a honorable profession. So I think that rebuilding the talent and participation and kind of willingness to serve and be in the system is a second. And I think three, quality of the policy and legislation that we get at a state and federal level in terms of its how well it reflects the best fact-based and evidence-based policymaking guidance, how well it reflects the needs of Americans. I think ultimately the ability to deliver and have policies, whether it's on issues like climate or everything from climate to family leave to economic inequality, et cetera. I think all of those issues, seeing indications that we're getting stronger, better policy is a third thing we'd like to see. And one just last thing that I'd say is how I come to thinking about both what success looks like and how you create a stronger kind of measures of success for the system. I started my educational background as an engineer. I, I studied engineering. I went on to be in management consulting and spend more than a decade working with both public and private sector organizations and how do they define success? How do they execute on strategies that really are effective for solving both global problems and building great organizations? And I did that exclusively almost outside of the U.S., working in Africa and Asia and 
for many years and then serving as an advisor to secretaries of state on how do we build kind of public-private efforts globally in newly emerging markets. So much of my career was really looking outside the U.S. and how do we build strong organizations and societies and set goals. I was part of negotiating the Sustainable Development Goals, which was an agreement, 190 country agreement in 2015 that set measurable goals that the world was trying to achieve together. So, you know, I spent a lot of my career looking at that outside the U.S. and it became really clear to me after the 2016 election that really building those coalitions across business, across politics, across civil society within the U.S. was so critical to getting us on a better track. And no one sector could do that on their own. I couldn't agree more. And you have had this incredibly fascinating career, largely focused overseas, as you mentioned. Can you talk a little bit about what the lessons learned from that experience are that can be applied to rebuilding trust and rebuilding American democracy? Yeah, I mean, two sides. One lesson I take from working globally and seeing economies that either were emerging from more autocratic regimes or were slipping away from democracy is an appreciation of how risky it is when you have leaders that are willing to undermine the norms that a society has operated under for a long time around respect for the rule of law and respect for democratic processes, et cetera. So unfortunately, I think some of what we've seen in the U.S. has echoes of what has happened in other countries over over time. So I take that away. And we do see, you know, the Economist Intelligence Unit, if you look at their data, they track the strength of democracy across all the countries of the world. From 2000 to 2010, countries were trending to become more democratic. Of course, you saw Eastern Europe was trending in that direction. Across Africa, you saw countries trending in that direction in Latin America. But since then, we're seeing since 2010 that on average, countries are moving the other direction of becoming less free and more autocratic, et cetera. Obviously, Russia and China were also in that category between 2000 and 2010. So, you know, I think the global trends are not unrelated. And it's really important that the U.S., I think I do have the appreciation of people around the world look to the U.S. as a nation that sets the tone on democracy and on business and on cultural culture. And that leadership has certainly been at risk over the last, you know, five years or so. And you see autocratically inclined leaders kind of taking advantage of some of that leadership. So I think the first thing I take away from the work internationally is that the risk factors of the U.S. not solving these problems well go far beyond our own borders. I think in terms of on the more opportunity side of the equation and where I think we also underestimate the potentials, I do think we have emerging leaders across the world in politics and in business who could really set like the tone for kind of a modern political system across many 
countries. And, you know, recently, you know, Jacinda Ardern, the Prime Minister of New Zealand, unfortunately stepped down. She was one of those leaders that had kind of a new generation of leadership that was really compelling, but she's certainly not the only one. And we have some great leaders emerging uh, elsewhere as well. So Macron in France or others. So I do think there's this, you know, we shouldn't underestimate the opportunity to be building kind of globally a cadre of leaders who have a vision for what democracy can be not only in the U.S., but elsewhere. And similarly, there's an emerging class of business leaders who I would say are quite forward-leaning in terms of the society they want to be part of building and one that is that's the reason you do see some really proactive action by business on issues like climate change, racial equality, et cetera, even though there are some real kind of headwinds to that leadership. But I think the opportunity there is significant. Yeah. I mean, I think the lesson learned globally is just how fragile democracy can be, even when the trend lines seemingly are improving over time, they can quickly dissipate. It strikes me that as you talked about your experience, that the diplomatic work that you did for the two secretaries of state, you know, relies not only on formal rules of international law, but often on norms and culture and, you know, interpersonal trust. And I'm wondering, those are hard to measure in a democracy as large as the United States. But what is the role that you believe business and other groups can play in reestablishing, you know, a norms and culture around democracy, not just better policies? It's a really important question, especially since we know that overall business and business leaders are relatively trusted actors in the system. As an aside, if Americans have, the polling would suggest that there's very mixed feelings about the role of business and politics, right? There's a overall perspective that business brings a lot to society and then also a frustration that the influence of business and politics is sometimes very inconsistent with those of communities. So I do think it's important for business to recognize it has to be very clear itself about what role it wants to play in the system. And I think we've been very active with our members on working to make sure that business knows where it can play a positive role, where are there places where things like corporate PAC spending and ensuring that that spending is transparent and aligned with democracy, that business leaders take on those things as well and really look at their own organizations and how they participate in the system. So I think when we relate that back to norms and trust in the system, one of the things that erodes norms is inconsistency or a sense that your political leaders, your business leaders are saying one thing and doing another thing. So I think, and that's not restricted to only really bad guys. You know what I mean? There are plenty of actors who, you know, are trying to do good things or are neutral, et cetera, who still have a lot of inconsistency in the way that they participate in the system, sometimes not fully intentionally. So I do think rebuilding trust in the system requires some of that hard look, whether you're in government and looking at, have you been able to deliver on what you promised or are you in business? Are you participating in the system in a way that actually helps strengthen democracy and doesn't make short-term trade-offs in terms of taxes and regulation or otherwise that might undermine the system? So I think that's one piece. I think the second is 
setting some of those clear guardrails of when is the line being crossed in democracy. So there's a variety of political scientists who look at that. Ziblatt is one of them, one of the authors of How Democracies Die. And when you look at things like election results not being respected, political retribution against companies who disagree with you, political violence, those are all things that are indicators of democracy moving in the wrong direction. And so, for instance, our members in Wisconsin have been very deliberate over the last year and a half about publicly and within industry associations saying, look, election administrators getting threatened, that goes beyond our values. The Wisconsin Supreme Court banning ballot boxes, that's something that is not consistent with enabling participation, another one of our principles. Political leaders that are willing to suggest that elections are not valid or refuse to accept future election results, we can't support them. And we'll, you know, we'll take a stand and endorse candidates that stand up for democracy based on some pretty basic criteria. So I think business leaders setting those kind of guardrails as our members have done in Wisconsin and as we've done nationally is something we'll have to do consistently in multiple spaces over the years ahead. And I hope that that can kind of be part of shifting the norms to trend back in the direction of really respect for the system as a not negotiable. Yeah. I think the power of the How Democracies Die book was that, you know, many of us think of it as democracies dying in a coup, but most democracies die from a thousand little cuts, the similar ones that you're mentioning that are happening in Wisconsin until the rules and trust break down. What are you looking for in 2024 to see if the trend lines are improving in terms of how elections are administered and how the participation sort of indicates the strength or weakness of our democracy? Yeah. Ultimately, what we'd like to see is that the debate is around real policy issues that are important to Americans and a healthy debate about the best way to solve those problems. I think what we can expect is we will still see elements of the 2024 elections that are not <laughs> just focused on getting to you know, healthy debates around policy options, it's a question of how much, right? So I think what we would be worried about is debates around whether election results are valid. That would be, you know, I think there's a risk that I think the 2022 election did show that candidates that questioned election results were less successful. So that may be not as big a feature of this election as it was in 2022, from 2020, but that's one certainly a risk factor and hopefully one that reduces. I think identity politics, the efforts to really, whether it's, you know, to demonize certain groups, whether it's LGBT groups or based on race or otherwise, I think that's certainly another worrying sign. And another thing that political scientists overall, there's another political scientist we look at, Barbara Walter is her name. She's wrote a book called How Civil Wars Start that looks is based on the international benchmarks of what have been the factors that over many civil conflicts have been the warning signs. And, you know, purely identity-based politics is a real warning sign. And we, I think, have certainly seen that in the system as well. So those are things that, you know, I think we would 
are concerned about. We think there are opportunities to counter that candidates can set a different kind of tone, but it will take a lot of courageous leadership in many quarters to try to make sure that the election isn't overtaken by those concerns and kind of starts moving us back to, you know, legitimate debates across parties and candidates around how to solve problems. And I think that brings us to a last question, which is a number of New Deal leaders are preparing runs for Congress or seeking re-election to Congress or other offices. The Leadership Now Project creates a candidates to watch list as well as a democracy defenders list. How do you select who's on that list and what are you looking for from those candidates that you want to highlight? Great question. In 2018, one of the early things we did as an organization is say, how could we identify talent in a somewhat novel way in the political system? So we looked at three factors. We've often evaluated people who are newer to politics, so we couldn't only look at their political resume. We looked at their resume outside. So we do look at the professional experience of the candidate, what they've accomplished across multiple fields, ideally having experience outside of politics, whether it's in a nonprofit business or serving in the military type of field. We look at their academic qualifications. Are they bringing new expertise to the system that we don't have as much of? And we look at their policy positions, of course, first and foremost on democracy. And we don't have like litmus tests on any policies beyond that. We're looking, you know, first and foremost at democracy. And then we look at the dynamics of their race. And what we've overall found is, and we interview candidates to get a stronger sense for their leadership. But I think what we have seen is that talented, compelling candidates who've proven their effectiveness in a variety of spheres can outperform expectations in a race. So, you know, I would take a bet on a compelling candidate with a strong track record who brings new energy to the field in a tough race, put them ahead of someone who has less of those qualities and has an easier race. So I think those who are entering politics, who are relatively newer to the space or are bringing new ideas and perspectives are so critical to support and can get overlooked. But I think what we found by doing some of that more kind of rigorous evaluation and looking at those criteria, we've been able to really find some amazing talent that's now really risen in Congress and are quickly becoming leaders in that space. So I'm sure there are many more of those to come that can be critical to getting you know, Congress and state houses and elsewhere to be more effective at solving our big problems. Couldn't agree more. That's why the New Deal exists, this podcast exists, and the Leadership Now Project exists. And maybe our collective efforts can get our democracy back onto firmer foundations going forward. I want to thank you for joining us today and for your work at the Leadership Now Project. I think it's critically important to engage all sectors of our country in the democracy project, not just a single party or political leaders, but everyone. And I appreciate you bringing so many new thinkers and leaders to the table in that effort. Thanks, Ryan. And thanks for all of your work. It's great to be here. Thank you. An Honorable Profession is a New Deal Leaders podcast. 
Thanks to the team at New Deal for producing this episode. We encourage you to bring honor to public service, and because we keep things honorable, no tax dollars are used in the making of this podcast.